it's time for Claire Stanley to talk about, well, she does she does all that stuff along with Clark having to do with um, with advocacy. And if I hope you all uh, listen to those those um, Thursday uh, podcasts that come out on Thursdays, uh, the advocacy podcast that she's part of. So all I can say is take it away, Claire. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've done a few spe- uh, speaking events at these conventions this past fall, and I, I say every time, I, I so wish I'd rather be there in person with you guys. But I know that's not the this you know the scenario this year with COVID, but that's okay. I'm still very happy to be with you guys. Um, so yeah, um, just a brief introduction introduction of myself in case we've never met. I'm Claire Stanley. I'm the advocacy and outreach specialist in the National ACB office in Alexandria, Virginia. And Clark Rockfall and myself work on everything and anything surrounding advocacy in the national office. So um, just a plug, if you guys ever have any issues that you're dealing with individually or statewide or anywhere in between and you'd, and you'd like some assistance, please reach out. That's what we're here for. So, so yeah, I was asked to talk a little bit about what's going on um, advocacy-wise. And I was told that you guys is... Um, theme for the week is bridging the distance. And I think that's a great, a great concept to use as I talk about what we're doing in the national office, because we're always trying to kind of bridge the distance or fill in that gap between what we have access to right now as persons who are black or visually impaired and where we want to go, you know, go the distance and what we want to see change. So um, I've broken it down into about four or five sections. I have to look at my notes of the different areas or topic areas we're working in. Um, And please feel free to jot down any questions or um, comments. I don't know if we'll have time now to take the questions. If not, I can give you my email and you have our phone number and please reach out. Um, but we're working excitingly in many different areas in the advocacy world, and I'm excited to share. Um, I, I often joke with people, they say, oh, since COVID, do you guys have enough work to do? And I say, because of COVID, we have even more work to do. So, it, But it's exciting. We don't complain. We're excited. So, so the first bridge, bridging the gap or the distance I don't want to talk about is access to education. So education has definitely been impacted um, by the COVID-19 crisis. And not that it wasn't an issue before. Um, Education is always something that I know the blind community has been fighting for for many, many years. Um, We all know from personal experience that getting an equal education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, there's always... um, obstacles to overcome, but I'm going to specifically focus in on COVID access because um, we've gotten lots of reports from our members from people just like all of you who are listening about some of the obstacles that have arisen because of COVID-19. So the first one is using online learning platforms or learning management systems. Sometimes we'll hear people call them LMS systems. And Um, As we know, most universities have either gone completely virtual or have adopted some kind of hybrid model where you do both. Um, But I'm sure many of you are nodding at home that they are not fully accessible or are partially accessible using JAWS or NVDA or VoiceOver or whatever other system you use. Many of them are notorious for having all kinds of problems with those screen reading softwares. And so people are really struggling 
Um, we've heard stories about some called Sengage, Pearson, other ones. If any others are popping to your mind, please feel free to email me because we're trying to get a comprehensive list of all the programs out there. But again, just so many of these products don't work well with screen readers. And so students are literally being prevented from using or participating in their classes and their labs and um, seminars and things like that. So that's something that we're working on in the national office to, again, bridge that gap or bridge the distance so that we can have full access to education. Um, But we're also seeing it in uh, K-12 we are living truly in the 21st century where now that kids are learning at home, we're in that hybrid model again. They're doing a lot of work via tablets, iPads, Google devices, and those aren't fully accessible. And that can kind of have a, a twofold impact. It can impact the students who are blind themselves or visually impaired or because, you know, these are elementary school kids, potentially younger, or older mom and dad have to help them. And so if mom or dad is blind or visually impaired, mom or dad have to be able to use these systems. And so if they're not accessible with voiceover or whatever, now mom and dad can't work with their kids. So we're seeing lots of examples of, again, we're just in this era of smart devices and tablets. But if those apps or programs aren't designed to be accessible, we're seeing this huge um, chasm between the right to access information, whether you're in college Um, whether you're a parent, going all the way down to to kindergarten. So those are a lot of the things we're advocating for. And so um, I put up this plug out that if you're a parent or you're a student or a college student or anywhere there in between, let us know what programs are being used, both the good and the bad, which ones are really successful that we should be promoting or the ones that we need to be reaching out to and saying, you know, this isn't okay. You're not complying with the ADA or other laws. So education, that's kind of the first topic I wanted to talk about. That's where we're trying to bridge the distance and make sure that persons who are blind or visually impaired have full access to education at whichever level it is. Um, The next one I wanted to talk about is the equal right to uh, voting. And I feel like I could talk about this all day because we're deep in the heart of voting season, what it's like. Not It's not two weeks, it's like 10 days or I can't do the math, but we're very close to November 3rd in, in voting. And I think in Pennsylvania, you guys have early voting, so it might have already started or will start soon. So what is our rights to voting? Under the Help America Vote Act for people with disabilities, we use the terminology, the right to a public and independent vote. So that's the language I'll probably throw about throw out a little bit. So what are we doing to bridge that gap toward equal right to voting? Um, I had the opportunity to speak on a panel the other day um, about diversity and voting. And one of the other panelists, she was phenomenal. um, And she represented um, people of color and that that community for diversity of voting. And she had a very long history to talk about the evolution of voting. Whereas for me, you know, I I had to start with the, the Voting Rights Act of 65 to say, you know, the advocacy for those of us with disabilities in voting, at least formally, is still somewhat new because, you know, our rights are still somewhat new. So I think it was an interesting comparison to see that our newts are, our rights are still kind of in their infancy, um, but we're going to keep uh, keep advocating because of that. So one resource I'd love everybody to check out is a new um 
a partnership ACB has with several other disability rights advocacy organizations, and we're called the National Coalition for Accessible Voting, or NCAV. Uh, to check out the website, it's literally ncavoting.org, a little confusing, ncavoting.org. And we have that on our voting page at acb.org slash voting. And so we've do, been doing all kinds of advocacy with NCAV to make sure that people have the right to uh, access to resources, to know how to prepare to vote, know what their rights are, understand what it means to have a private and independent vote. So again, we're really trying to bridge that gap so that persons who are blind or visually impaired know what their rights are. Um, we have also been doing, I'm sure you guys are know, have been doing a lot of both litigation and legislation to, again, really bridge that divide, bridge that distance. Because as we all know, this year, because of COVID, we have a whole new set of circumstances. Now, even pre-COVID, absentee voting was really something that was new and flashy and on, you know, the, on the stage as far as voting. But COVID really accelerated that because I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to the polling place. I want to be able to stay at home and be safe and not expose myself. So absentee voting became especially pertinent. Um, so to accelerate that fight, we had a lot of litigation and or legislation. Um, so let me take a step back and talk about that. So why do we le do legislation or litigation? So the first thing we always do, and I believe you guys have done it in your own state of Pennsylvania, is reach out to the Secretary of State's office and say, you know, we have this community of people who are blind or visually impaired, or in a lot of contexts, we'll even branch out to the greater disability community, so it's broader, and say, we need to have accessible absentee voting. Most of the time, almost all the time, they push back. You know, they might nod and say, okay, but a lot of times it's a pretty slow moving process. So in some states, for instance, in West Virginia, once we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth a couple more times, they finally agreed that they would pass legislation. That was S-94, which became law. And they said, okay, you guys can have accessible absentee voting. Now, we kind of shrugged and nod our heads and said, but we don't really think a law was ever necessary under the Help America Vote Act and the uh, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. You were supposed to do it regardless. But if it's going to make you guys feel better and make you happy to pass the law, whatever, that's fine. We'll take it. So that's what we've seen in a few states. Um, we, Like I said, we saw it in West Virginia. We just saw it in Massachusetts as well. Kim Charlson did some really great work there. So again, in our opinion, we kind of, you know, laugh to ourselves because we don't think a new piece of legislation was really necessary. But if that's what they want to do to make themselves feel better and make it happen, that's one way we've seen it. But we've also had, unfortunately, to move to litigation in many states. I say unfortunately because, again, we rather just work with the Secretary of State's office, emphasize that right under the ADA and HAVA, and make these policies work. But a lot of times it doesn't, you know, the Secretary of State's offices just aren't willing to work with us. So in some states, we've had to bring lawsuits. So for instance, you guys probably saw through our different listservs that very recently, North Carolina was successful. They worked with Disability Rights North Carolina and a disability rights advocate. Um, to bring a lawsuit in the state of North Carolina. And now 
uh, there is, uh, they were successful to get a preliminary injunction that says, at least for the general election, they have to have accessible absentee voting for people who are blind or visually impaired. So I just wanted to emphasize that we leave no stone unturned as far as the the procedure we use to advocate for accessible voting. If it has to be legislation, we'll use legislation. If it has to be litigation, we'll use litigation. Ideally, we wouldn't have to use either of those and we could just work with the state and say, You're, you are already legally obligated to do this, get going. Um, so that's kind of what we've been doing um, advocacy-wise as it pertains to voting. Um, but one thing I want to emphasize in the national office that we're doing, again, to bridge that distance with voting is that come November 3rd and then November 4th, we're not going to stop working on this, you know, wait four years for the 2024 election to come on, come around and then pick back up. No, you know, this is an issue that's going to be going on indefinitely because we live in a democracy where voting is always important. And so we're going to continue to work on these issues even in you know in the in-between time because we want to make sure things are successful um, so we're going to continue to bar be part of that group I talked about NCAV and we'll be working with NCAV to work on these issues so that hopefully come you know 2022 when we have um, the next um, round of elections not the presidential but the congressional and things like that the midterm that we can have accessible voting and even sooner than that, I'm sure you guys have all kinds of local elections in 2021 and so on and so forth. So all that to say, this is going to continue to be an advocacy project the national office is doing even, you know, November 4th and onward. So that is a big area. So moving on to the next topic, where else are we trying to bridge that gap or bridge the distance for the rights of those of us who are blind or visually impaired? Well, I think it's extremely uh, timely to say that we're working in the healthcare field. So we want to make sure that people who are blind or visually impaired have access to healthcare and wellness in all kinds of different ways. You'll see as I go down my list that some of these things touch upon different aspects of health and wellness, but it's really timely. Again, we're in the COVID pandemic. That's, you know, directly connected to health. So we'll be talking all about that. Um, so one example I wanted to talk about was in the CARES package, which was the last stimulus package. Um, we thought we would have had more by now, but that hasn't happened. That's a whole other topic. But in the last CARES package, one provision said that when your um, your health provider uses telehealth systems, which tend to be, you know, online platforms. If your telehealth platform is inaccessible, that different privacy laws, different HIPAA policies can be laxed so that people can use things like just your typical phone instead of having you to use a, uh, an online platform. And those are examples of some of the things we're continuing to advocate for because it was great that we had that in the CARES package, but it's not indefinite. It will go, go away eventually. And just like I talked about before, a lot of platforms for education, similarly in health, are inaccessible with JAWS, NVDA, et cetera. And so we're advocating to, one, make those platforms accessible. We shouldn't have to have an exception. We should be able to use them, period. But if they're not accessible, making alternative circumstances possible. So that's one example of how we're really pushing for access to health care. Because I have heard in situations where uh, the, tel or the telehealth platform is inaccessible, the doctor will say, 
oh, we'll just come into the office then. Well, again, why should we have to risk our health during COVID? Um, you know, unlike other people, because it just won't work for us. So those are some of the things um, we're going to to work on. Um, so telehealth is one of the big ones we'll talk about. And if um, you guys are seeing certain companies, health companies or providers in your area that are using inaccessible telehealth programs, let us know. Um, another area in health that we're currently working on in the national office surrounds um, laboratories, uh, Quest Diagnostics, LabCorp. Those are the two big ones we see throughout the country. Um, they have moved to models now where when you go in, there is no person behind the desk. You walk in and there's supposed to be a tablet, some kind of sign-in tablet comparable to a, an iPad where you sign in and, you know, you go sit down and then they call your name based on the information you've entered in. Well, most of the time they're not accessible. If they are an iPad, voiceover is not turned on. They might not even be an Apple product and whatever pro product it is, they either don't have a, a text-to-speech software or they just haven't implemented it. Um, a lot of times, because there's no human being, for those of us who are blind or visually impaired, when you walk in, you might not even know that one's there. How are you supposed to know? So we've been working with Matt Handley, who's one of the attorneys ACB has been working successfully with for several years, and he's doing a great job. And we are trying to do some structured negotiations is hopefully always the first step instead of going all the way to litigation. But we're trying to work with those two companies. Um, so I've sent stuff out through the listservs. But if you guys have used either of those providers, LabCorp or Quest Diagnostic, and have experienced anything I've talked about, please email me or reach out. We're trying to get um, testimonials from people who say, you know, I went in I needed to get my lab work done and, you know, exactly the things I just talked about. I couldn't use the device. I didn't even know where the device was because I'm blind, things like that. So we're trying to work on um, with those things and hopefully we'll see a, a positive um, outcome from the structured negotiations um, and see what will happen. So that's another example of how we're trying to bridge that gap or the distance and make healthcare more accessible Um a perfect example is um, I was just seeing an advertisement the other day that Quest Diagnostics is going to be a potential um, server provider for testing for COVID. We want full access to COVID testing. That's huge. Um, so if that's a potential provider, I want to be able to use them. But again, if I go by myself, I can't sign in. Um, and we've heard stories where if you can't sign in, the phlebotomists in the back might not hear you. And so you could awkwardly be sitting there for a long time and they don't know you're there and you don't know how to communicate with them. And it provides a lot of really frustrating experiences. So let us know. Um, what else in health? Well, we're doing a lot of health and wellness. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but Clark Rockfall, our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, is actually a former Paralympian cyclist, uh, tandem cyclist. Um, so I was I always joke to him that this is his area of expertise, but he's been doing a lot of advocacy in the kind of fitness world for things like accessible um, fitness equipment. Um, treadmills, ellipticals, all those kinds of things. So we've been doing a lot of advocacy with different healthcare um, providers to make their products more accessible or accessible in the 
in the hole because most of them aren't. Um, one success that he had was working with Peloton. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Peloton. All their commercials are not accessible, so you might not even know. But Peloton is a system where you have something equivalent to an iPad on the bicycle, and you can literally take classes through the iPad. Um, but because it's an iPad pro- product, um, if it's not accessible with something like voiceover, you can't read the text. Um, there might be a teacher on the other end who you can hear talking to, but you can't see what they're doing. So you might need audio description. You have the ability to chat with other people, but again, without voiceover, you can't chat. So all kinds of things. Um, so we've actually had a really productive and exciting relationship built with Peloton that we're not going to stop where um, they're excited and they made their products accessible. You know, it's not perfect, but without a lawsuit, without anything, they wanted to work with us, which is huge. I'm sure all of you guys can agree with that. That's very rarely happens. Um, So we're going to continue to work with Peloton. They had actually wanted and planned to come to the convention this past summer, but so we all know that was impacted by COVID, but we're going to continue to have that relationship. And then the last thing in healthcare before I move on to the next topic is uh, durable medical equipment. Um, you guys might remember that in 2018, I believe it was, um, making durable medical equipment was one of our imperatives to work with Congress. It wasn't last year because we're still trying to work out what that'll look like because we have faced a lot of barriers, but making things like glucometers accessible for people with diabetes is still a huge priority for us because it's a really big issue. So we're going to continue to work on making durable medical equipment accessible. Um, Dan Spoon, our president, he called the other day and he said his elderly mother was using some kind of durable medical equipment that she brought home. And I apologize, I can't remember what it was, but it was a perfect example of how in 2020, technology has just come such a long way that doctors and hospitals can send you home with all kinds of devices now. But if they don't have things like text-to-speech, large print, um, making noises, having tactile buttons, they're not accessible for us. So really stressing that they need to be accessible for the blind community. So we're really trying to bridge that gap as far as making um, equal access to, to medical equipment. Um, The next second to last one I wanted to talk about is bridging um, and making getting moving through that gap for transportation services. I always hear people say, and I completely agree as somebody who is blind, that one of the biggest barriers those of us who are blind face is lack of transportation. If you don't have transportation, you can't get to work. You can't go to the grocery store. all those kinds of things. We've seen it because of COVID, it's gotten even worse. And so it's huge. Um, I have the opportunity uh, to be the co-chair for something called the Transportation Task Force, which is part of a bigger group of disability advocacy organizations called the Consortium on Citizens with Disabilities, or CCD. We have a lot of, you know, um, allies in that group, for instance, AFB, the American Foundation for the Blind is part of it, things like that. Um, So in that group, we've done things like draft a letter to the uh, National Governors Association to talk about what kind of uh, 
improvements they need to make post-COVID to really make sure that what we saw happen to transportation because of COVID doesn't continue on. For instance, I know in my area here in the Washington, D.C. area, transportation's really been cut because of COVID. And we're really scared and nervous that come post-COVID, it won't increase again. And so we reached out to the Governor's Association and said, please keep this in mind. We've also worked with transit unions to talk about um, some of the changes that have been made to transportation because of COVID, but talk about how you can accommodate people who are blind. For instance, um, in many areas, probably in all over Pennsylvania too, like here in DC, um, you now have to load uh, through the back door of the bus. Now, technically, you are supposed to be able to load from the front of the bus if you have a disability, but I don't know about you guys. I still haven't seen that um, carried out successfully here and where I live just outside of DC. So we've been working with transit unions to talk about these accommodations for people who are blind and how to work with us. So we've been trying to really um, work with them on that. Um, and then the last or almost the last thing I wanted to talk about um, transportation is the work that our transportation um, committee and our environmental access committees here at ACB um, have been working on. They have been doing such great work to talk about these issues, both because of COVID, but also long term. Um, I hope everybody was able to participate in the transportation summit that the two groups put on at uh, the 20. 19 convention it was extremely or sorry the 2020 i'm getting my dates mixed up the 2020 convention they did great work and um, ron brooks did a great job on really being kind of the the mind behind that with many other people um and we were able to get a lot out of that that we can move forward with so um that was a great success and so they actually drafted a report because of the summit so i'd encourage everybody to check out that and then the last thing I wanted to talk about transportation, I am almost done talking, I promise, um, is the surface transportation bill. That was one of our um, imperatives for this past year for the leadership conference. Um, we, the surface transportation bill was supposed to be reauthorized on September, the last day of September. Well, COVID happened and it got a continuing resolution and did not happen. And so Congress said, okay, we're just going to do a continuing resolution and give it one more whole year to, to go forward. So at first we were bummed, right? We wanted to see that passed, but I put on my optimistic hat and said, okay, well, we have a whole new year to go out and advocate and lobby Congress to say, okay, now these are the things we want to go under the surface transportation bill. And so we can put on almost like a Christmas tree. We can put on so many different ornaments of things on the tree that we want to go under the surface transportation bill. Um, so for instance, one of the big ones ACB was talking about was encouraging the um, partnership between accessible pedestrian signals, APS, anywhere leading pedestrian interval signalization is used. So LPI, for those of you who aren't familiar, are when uh, pedestrians get a few extra seconds to start crossing the street. But if you don't have an APS to tell you that you get those few extra seconds, we don't get the benefit as pedestrians. So that's a huge thing. So that's just one example of things we want to go under the FAST Act or the Surface Transportation Bill, as it's called. Um, so if you guys have any other issues that you'd like to get plugged in, please let us know. Um, for instance, we've had ideas about micromobility policies because we know we're all driven crazy by those e-scooters all over. 
things like that. So let us know if you have any issues. And then just one more quick area I wanted to talk about when it comes to closing the gap that literally touched upon many of the things we talked about is just technology. We want to continue to work in the technology space to make sure that's accessible. And I just wanted to emphasize this because it goes through so many of the things we talked about. It touches upon telehealth. It touches upon durable metal coal equipment. It touches upon voting. So we're just continuing to talk. It touches upon um, accessible kiosks for things like when you go into LabCorp. So it really touches upon all the things we're talking about. And there's a bill out there called the Accessibility Technology Bill that would call for more funding for AT out in the community. So we're trying to get that out in the community and passed by Congress. So we're just always trying to pass um, more action in Congress to get accessible technology, to get the funding it needs. Because all of us, I'm sure you guys are nodding, agreeing that as far as you know, access to the community and bridging that gap and, and making the leaps and bounds we want to have so we can have equal access to, to our society is really going to come through because of the advancement of technology. Um, so that's kind of an overview. I, I feel like I've been talking for a while, but that's what's going on in the national office. And that's what we're trying to do to, to bridge that distance. So, Claire, now that this Congress is going to be over and all the bill numbers are going to change for next year. Yes. Um, when we get our education for the legislative seminar, um, how's all that going to work next year? Yep. Um, so we'll still be having the legislative seminar, just like we always do. But uh, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever word we want to use, it will be virtual this year. So you won't be coming to D.C., but we'll distribute the information like we always do. We will once again give a we will write and provide the um, summaries on the designated imperatives, as we call them, and they'll be on our website and we'll email them out so you guys can have them. And then we will have the legislative seminar where you guys can, we'll have actual um, sessions where we'll talk about them, educate, and you guys can ask questions. So it won't be the same because it won't be in person, but we'll still still do what we always do. Phone number ending in 758, please. Hi, it's Barbara Marks. How are you all today? I'd okay. like to, um, I'm very happy about the television shows that uh, some of them have audio now. Mm-hmm. And, but they also seem to be getting less and less talking. You know, the ones that don't have audio, a lot of the shows. Especially uh, my favorite one of mine that has just come back is Undercover Boss. And at at the end, they put on the screen uh, how each person is doing now. And I have tried to call the network, you know, to say, hey, you know, blind people or low vision or older people, you know, we can't read about, you know, how these people are doing that you've given them money to, you know, for whatever. But I've gotten nowhere. Do you have any suggestions? Well, first of all, good for you for being your own advocate. That's awesome. Um, So those requirements for audio description um, fall under the CVAA, the 21st Century Communication and Video Accessibility Act. Um, And it actually just celebrated its 10th anniversary. So hope you guys saw some of the promotions we did. 
Um, so under the CVAA, they only have to provide, I believe the number is something like 87.5 hours per week. So there's a designated hour amount, which can be really frustrating, right? Because you're like, that's not enough. So, um, and they have the discretion to choose which shows they, they audio describe. Um, and it's only certain stations. It's like the, the top uh, broadcasting stations and then uh, a several that get the highest ratings each year um so that could be what the problem is is again that they get to choose um and then they're complying with their hours even though you know we want more but all that to say one thing we've recognized in the national office is that times are a change in that um issues under the federal communications commission the fcc that deals with these are just really changing you know television is changing more people are using streaming services you know, just in 10 years, what we thought was important then can look really different. So all that to say, that was long-winded answer to say that the national office is starting to think that we want to advocate what we might call the CVAA 2.0, because we think that things need to be changed and evolve. So we are starting to think about how we might advocate to change some things to improve the CVAA and adapt and evolve to the changing times. So if you guys have thoughts like that, let us know. Contact us at advocacy at acb.org and let us know your issues because we are starting to think how um, the CVAA might need to be um, buffed up and evolved to accommodate to the changing times. So could this be one of your issues, Uh, one of the issues? Yeah, you know, of course, we can't say yes or no for sure, but possibly. So email us at advocacy at acb.org. Thank you. Yeah, I was so excited when there was a show that came on, and uh, they have the audio for it. It's terrific, especially when there's an ending to a drama show and you hear no talking. Yes, I completely agree. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but anyway, I'm glad for... The, the ones that they have, and I hope they start doing more. Thank you. You're welcome. Claire, this is Doug Hunsinger. Um, I'm wondering if you've done much work with uh, restaurants and places that have the kiosk where you order. Yeah, so kiosks is an issue that's popping up everywhere. Um, Like I had talked about, it's happening in medical facilities. We know it's happening in airports. And so, yes, uh, restaurants is one area that it's popped up in and that we have had some conversations about. Um, It's nothing we're working on significantly right now, but it is something that's been in the conversation space. Um, So I'll take note that it's been something brought up here tonight. If you guys see it at any major chains, let us know. Of course, it matters everywhere, but a lot of times it's the bigger chains that are easier to approach first. So if you guys see major, like, uh, you know, chains of restaurants, let us know. That would be really helpful. Anyone else? Yeah, this is Will. Hey, um, I think Wawa down here in the South has a, they have a, a kiosk-driven uh, ordering center for their food. So, you know, in each of their stores. So, you know, I think that might be the wave of the future. I was going to ask you, you know, the FCC is fine for network TV, but there's so much content on the web that's not, you know, network. You know, there's you know, bloggers and, and influencers and people putting stuff on YouTube. 
is this just like, you know, rounding up cats to try and get them to have description for this stuff? That was actually one of the examples that I, I wanted to give when I talked about the CVA AA 2.0 is for that very reason, because we know now that people, you know, obviously the major streaming services are the first ones we talk about Hulu and Netflix, but YouTube is another big one that we talk about. So YouTube, um, I'm sure you could give a list of, you know, many others, obviously when it gets to the nitty gritty of like individual blogs, that's going to be a lot harder to, you know, nail down. But as far as the big ones like YouTube and things, that's actually our, our main thought process between CVAA 2.0 is that it's 2020, the landscape has really changed and we need to address those issues. Have you seen any use of AI to develop um, audio description? I know visual um, material is really tough for computers, but I was wondering if you're aware of anybody trying to create an algorithm that will, you know, basically look at the stuff and then you know, generate a description. Um, not too much. I know that, well, like uh, seeing AI obviously is doing some of that, but that tends to be more screen, re you know, reading the text mm, versus static. description. Mm. But I know at least I understood that was one of their intents at one point was to do at least rudimentary audio description. And then Facebook does some of that really rudimentary as well. You know, it'll say like a woman wearing glasses. So it's doing some mm. really rudimentary stuff. So I could see it getting somewhere, but I have a feeling it's more, it's not going to happen tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah, but I have noticed, this is Chris, but I have noticed, you know, since the latest update on iOS, that strange things get described as I'm going past images on my phone. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it'll say, and you'll go like, what? Because <laughs> it'll say like strawberry shortcake or something weird like that. <laughs> but when you go back to it, it's just like, it just says image and it just makes a weird little noise. So you go like, well, how did it know that was strawberry shortcake the first time past? First time and not now. Yeah. 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 Kelsey. Hello. I, I've been working with a local uh, hospital system in my area. They designed their own app that is completely inaccessible with voiceover, and I'm not getting anywhere. What should I do? Uh, reach out to us, of course, is the first thing. Um, apps are so tricky because technically they're covered, but they're still a little bit in the gray zone. Um, so definitely reach out to us. Um, I'd love to, um, one of the attorneys that I had talked about, Matt Hanley, that's kind of become his bread and butter is things like websites and apps. So if you reach out to me and give me a little bit more context, um, I can run it by him because he's kind of become the expert to tell us, oh, that's, you know, worth the fight or not. Um, but definitely, you know, it, it will, it sounds like already you've done your due diligence, but I'd definitely always right. say you bring to HR. So it's like the first few steps. It sounds like you've already done. So I've, um, I've, re yeah. I've contacted them through their online form and said, Hey, your app's not accessible. Hmm. And they have not, they've not given me any kind of response at all. They're just completely ignoring me. That's so I'm so sorry. Have you, um, given them a link on the WCAG standards just to like oh, point them. No, I haven't. Okay. That might be the next step is just, um, I'm sure you could even send a link to the standards for, um, the worldwide content standards. WCAG is the world, uh, sorry, why am I getting this right? Web contact accessibility guidelines and the current standards that are considered to be like the rule of thumb is two point, 
2.0AA. So two A's. So WCAG 2.0AA. So you might want to send them a link and just show them that's kind of the current standard. Um, and in the U.S., we haven't officially adopted DOD, uh, WCAG standards as law, but we kind of have by default because many um, judges and lawsuits are starting to reference to them. Um, so um, if you contact me, we could even find a few lawsuits that point to it and say like, look, it's not technically the law by regulations, but judges are starting to really indicate that it is. Um, so there is a little bit of, um, you know, something to point to, to, to show that it's being used. But you Did you give your email address again in case we missed it? Um, advocacy at acb.org. Okay, that's what I thought, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. My audio cut out, so I wanted to make sure I got it. Yeah. But my comment, too, is, you know, using a, a feedback form, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, you really need to talk to a person somewhere in, in a system because a feedback form you know, how many zillion of them do they have? And yours isn't going to work to the top until a whole bunch. Of, they don't prioritize them in any real way. Phone number 640, please. Hi, Betty Passanati from Philadelphia. And my question was about the uh, legislative seminar. And I'm glad there's going to be a virtual component to it this year because I went once and uh, the educational aspect is phenomenal. And uh, now I think, and more people might be able to attend it now that it's that it's going to be virtual. It's unfortunate that it is, but in a way it might have a, be an upside. But my question was, uh, I understand they'll be talking about the, you know, the legislation and such. Well, is there a way that we'll be able to make virtual appointments or something with our uh, legislators to talk to them, or at least their aides or whatever, the way we can do in person? Not the same way, but I mean, is there going to be some opportunity to interact with the with our legislators? Yes, we are encouraging all the attendees to do exactly what you guys always do and reach out to your your staffers and all this. Well, I shouldn't say all, but most uh, staffers that I've engaged with are all very still willing to do um, meetings over the phone or via Zoom or whatever platform. So they have adjusted just like the rest of us and just do it virtually. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that'll, that'll be great. Won't, we won't have to worry about transportation or hotel. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, hopefully more, more people will be allowed to participate, be able to participate in it this year. That, that's our hope. Yeah. That's our hope. Yeah, that's neat. Okay. Thank you. Nice. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Anybody on the panel aside? I have a question. Um, this is Will again. Hey, I might have missed it, but is there a definitive case out there that has found that a commercial website is a place of public accommodation under the ADA so that it can get up to the appeals court and maybe to the Supreme Court and get finally decided? Nothing has gone. Well, the closest we've gotten to the Supreme Court is uh, Domino's, but they denied cert, meaning they refused to take it. So by mm-hmm. default, they held in place that the Ninth Circuit's ruling was, it, it did stand. So in that respect, we have good, um, a good ruling in the, in the Ninth Circuit. Right. Which I'm doesn't apply to, to the other circuits, right? Exactly. So. I'm pausing because I feel like on the East Coast, and I can't remember all my circuits, I want to say maybe a case that came out of Massachusetts also had a, a favorable ruling for us. 
um, I can do my research and get back to you. But so we mm-hmm. don't have a favorable ruling in all the circuits. But I want to say we have favorable ruling in a couple of the circuits, which makes it really frustrating, right? Because it's kind of a, a mismatch hodgepodge of some favorable and some not favorable. And then some that have neither favorable or unfavorable, they're just kind of silent on the topic. Um, but as mm-hmm. far as like a truly slam dunk, no, <laughs> we do not have mm-hmm. one. So, yeah. And a lot of people with dominoes, actually, a lot of people kind of took a sigh of relief that it didn't go to the Supreme Court, because as much as we would love a favorable ruling, we don't know if that would happen in the Supreme Court. So it's kind of like, apprehensively, like, should we do we want it to happen? I don't know. You know, it's like, don't play with fire kind of thing. So is there any thought to have a legislative solution and just amend the ADA to uh, add commercial websites to the designated uh, venues under the public accommodation rubric. Now, do you mean like a totally separate piece of law or do you mean regulations to the ADA? In, in both. One, you need to have a law passed and you have to fill, fill it with regulations, but the law doesn't mm-hmm. enumerate, the law enumerates several yeah. uh, right locations that are public accommodations, but it doesn't yes. mention commercial yeah. websites. Yeah. So the, Congress could change the law, right? And Mm -hmm. just resolve this issue once and for all. That's true. Yeah. You know, I haven't heard much discussion about that. That's a, that would be a good community event call to weigh the pros and cons and thoughts of people. Um, I've never heard that conversation taken all the way. Now I do Mm -hmm. know that department of justice has on more than one time explicitly said that websites are covered. They just haven't promulgated regulations. So based on what happens in 10 days or whatever, and depending on the administration, Mm -hmm. maybe new regulations could be promulgated, but we don't know. Um, But yeah, as far as an amendment to the law or a totally new piece of legislation, I don't know. That's a food for thought Mm -hmm. kind of question. Sadly, this has been percolating for about 12 years now. Republican and Democratic administration. Yes, the Obama administration also failed. That's a great point. Yeah. Just like the quiet car and the... uh, uh, accessible uh, money has still languished in yeah. administrative Currency 18 health. years later, yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I might have come to the end of my time. I'm happy to answer more questions, but I don't want to take extra time. <laughs> but um, I, So you, you tell me, Christine, what you want me to do. But I do want to emphasize again, you can always contact us at advocacy at acb.org or, of course, contact the phone number on the ACB website, Um, You can always ask for Claire or Clark or even just explain your issue and you'll be passed on to us. But again, advocacy at acb.org. And we're happy to answer any questions that have arisen. Well, um, since we don't have questions popping up, I think we can spring you from this, um, from the (laughs) stocks and pillory of the, of of the PCB. (laughs) Well, thank you again. I was I really enjoyed being part of this. And again, I, I hope next time I can actually go to Pennsylvania in person. <laughs> so thank you so much. We'd love to have you. Thanks. <laughs> have a good one. You too.